Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Welcome, Michael, to this latest episode of Reflections, where we talk about the weaponization of motherhood. Hi, Terry. Thank you for having me once again. So we will be going over episode 67 with Bethany Johnson and Maggie Quinlan on their book, You're Doing It Wrong, Mothering Media and Medical Expertise, episode 68 with Indra Lucero of the National Advocates for Pregnant Women on Reproductive Justice as a Human Right, episode 69, Survivor Stories with Jessica Ingalls on Courts Giving Custody to Abusers, and finally, episode 70, which is a brief follow-up to episode 69 on Jessica Ingalls and what happened uh, after I released that episode. Right. Starting with the first episode with uh, Bethany and Maggie, you started off with a quote about the uh, president of Roosevelt, uh, defining basically what a good mother is. And it sort of made me think of what it is that we in society think a good mother is or or what is it that we expect and what is it that the media explains that we should expect. And I, I just thought of different examples that really uh, shape the way that we think. Oh, what, what kind of examples are you thinking about? Well, most recently, I was uh, I went to the movies and I watched this uh, movie, it was, which is out now, uh, Joker. And one of the things that I, that I saw in the movie was there was a scene where the main character explain where the main character finds out that he was abused as a child, and there was an article in the newspaper that said that the mother was neglectful. But because she was with an abuser and allowed the abuse to continue, um, and sort of it sort of put the blame on the mother for not protecting her child. And um, after the movie, I was speaking to some friends, and a friend of mine told me, "Yeah, that was really bad that the mother that the mother just allowed to happen. Just why? Why? She said things like, "Why didn't she just leave?" And thanks to the education that I've uh, got from this podcast, and and I've I've understood now why that's so wrong for us to think. And in general, I believe most people who watch this movie would probably have the feeling that they should blame the mother in this, in this case, instead of putting the blame on the father. And maybe, again, this is fictional, but maybe there is a reason in real life why mothers would stay with an abuser. And some of them are very justified in, in many cases, staying would probably be one of the best options or the one of the safest options. So when you say safe, you're saying that leaving might put them at higher risk of being killed or harmed, Correct. physically harmed. Right. As we spoke about in previous reflections, that's one of the most surprising statistics that I found. And so this is something, this is just another way that uh, society doesn't really have that on the forefront of their mind when, uh, in general when people are speaking. I think it's also interesting because it reminds me of the episode with Rachel Louise Snyder. When we were talking about Rachel Louise Snyder's No Visible Bruises book, I shared in our reflections that there was a chapter in the book that dealt with inmates, most of whom had come from abusive families. 
where the father was the abuser and the mother was the victim. And yet somehow their narrative and their memory of that was the father was being victimized. The father was the one that was wronged. And it was the mother who was the person who committed the harm. Or committed that, that or, or instigated and, and somehow caused the father to react the way they, they, they are. So, so there's a lot of justification for the actions of the abuser. And um, sometimes it's just the narrative that's built around what happened because it's framed through the abuser's eyes. Yeah, so that's actually very interesting because when you saw this film, The Joker, first of all, were you surprised that there were so many people who were blaming the mother? Well, in the movie, it was... I don't want to give any spoilers away, but in in the movie, he committed a horrible act, and this was used to justify that horrible act. Now, uh, for those of you who are not aware, Joker is is a villain, and in this movie, he is the protagonist. So um, the movie does make you feel, in many ways, sorry for, 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 for the main character. And in, that's one of the reasons it makes uh, the viewer maybe, I would say, uncomfortable, because it, it made me uncomfortable in many ways. And that's one of the things that I attribute my discomfort, with, which was trying to justify the actions of, of, of a horrible person by giving it context that uh, may not necessarily be all that justified. So this is just one of the things. So when, when, when I was discussing the movie after I finished seeing it, it was just one of the things that stood out to me. And that's why when I, when I mentioned that in passing, the feedback was, well, you know what, that was justified or that was wrong of the mother to do. So that's, that's, that's where uh, I had a open, more of an open discussion. And um, yes, it, it's something that I now see more critically that I didn't before. So when you were listening to this episode with Maggie uh, and Bethany, on their book, You're Doing It Wrong, which basically is a history of motherhood, starting from, you know, preconception uh, to conception and pregnancy and postpartum. And then there's the fourth trimester that they define, which is the postpartum. Was there anything that was surprising to you about what you learned? Or did these ideas and concepts that they shared, were they consistent with a lot of what you have learned already and heard from previous episodes around the ways in which our society and culture is sexist, is misogynistic, and the norms that we create to maintain those ideas. I think this episode really brought a lot of things into the forefront. I already had an idea of some of the things that were discussed. In fact, um, my sister, who had a baby about a year ago, was considering not having a birth uh, in, in, um, in the hospital. Instead, she wanted to do, do, do this at home. With, with, with some of the research that she did, one of the things that she did was she showed me a film. It's a documentary called The Business of Being Born. I'm not sure if you heard of it, but it's basically a film, a documentary that explains the history of how uh, the United States uh, moved from having mostly births at home to having mo- uh, births mostly in the hospital. I believe now it's a very, very tiny percentage of people in the United States who have it at home. And part of it is, yes, the technology. But the other part of it is if you look at other countries, 
you have more births that are at home and more midwives that are doing a lot of this birthing. And a lot of the times, the movie shows how a lot of the times this is something that's actually better than if you were to do it in the hospital. Uh, C-sections are something that are pushed a lot in hospitals, and it may not necessarily be the best course of action for every single woman. I don't think well, one of the things that the, the film poses is that, that that's not something that's necessary, which is something that goes along with the lines of what, uh, what Bethany and Maggie stated. So that was, so, so yeah, it, it's just one of those things that reinforced the, uh, the, the idea of how we should be critical in, on what kind of services we're receiving from the hospital and from our professionals. Um, and to see what kind of research you can do in order to, let's say, when you're giving birth, what, what, what kind of options do you have? One of the things that my sister considered was having a midwife give birth. A lot of these women, they, they already have a lot of the information and they do have medical information and they are connected to the hospital. So they could give birth at home. But if something were to go wrong, they would have uh, access to, to uh, doctors in the hospital. Uh, because that's one of the things, the major things that are um, advocated by, by hospitals, which is, you know, it, this is the, the safest place to, ta- to have a... A birth. However, one of the statistics mentioned in the film is that out of all developed countries, the United States has a, 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 a infancy mortality rate that's not not as good as the other uh, developed countries. So, so that's something to consider. So, I, I I do encourage people to do as much research as possible from credible sources in order to make a decision uh, when it comes to giving birth. What you just said actually speaks to two the ideas that came up during my conversation with Maggie and Bethany. One of them was how this very radical feminist group at the time, back in the early 20th century, heterodoxy, um, was responsible for the birthing movement moving into hospitals. And how originally the idea was that birth is painful and if you move it to hospitals it'll be more contained and anesthesia will help make the process uh, less painful for mothers and i'm guessing they had never anticipated how it would then be controlled and usurped by the medical industry whose main goal is profit over the mother and the child's welfare and care and so that was one idea that I thought about from what you just said, and also, you know, the low mor- the the mortality rate for birth obviously differs across race. And so the example that I believe Bethany shared was Serena Williams and her near death experience after giving birth, um, and her blood clot, and how nobody listened to her, and even someone with such status and privilege from wealth, there's a huge dis- disparity for mortality rates for mothers based on race, that's something that came out despite her privilege. And I know we've discussed her example multiple times over our reflections, but it just keeps coming up where there's this intersection of sexism and racism in the medical industry. Right. So there's this narrative that that is reinforced by the media and society itself on how, like you said, in that case, you have um, black women are supposed to supposedly more tolerant there was a study that I, I, I believe I talked about the study before, but it said that many doctors um, believed, or people that were educated believed that there was uh, certain biological differences between different races. Things like, oh, well, 
uh, black people supposedly have thicker skin, and that's something that a lot of a lot of people believe, and it, it's not true, right? So this is this is something that that um, that yeah, it, our, the narrative in in the media is, is reinforcing a lot of these things, and. Um, Thanks to this episode, there's things that I never heard of before. One of the things that you just mentioned was uh, the Twilight Sleep. I never thought, uh, I never heard of Twilight Sleep until now. And that sounds very, it makes sense. And it's interesting how that movement was uh, propped up by wealthy white women, which is not something that you necessarily think of. But that goes along the lines of, well, this is something that a wealthy white women would benefit from and you don't need it so much with uh, other races. So it's something that existed before and something that continues to this day. Yeah, so that brings us to our next episode, the interview with Indra Lucero of the National Advocates for Pregnant Women, uh, episode 68. And they are an organization, a nonprofit that combines pro bono criminal defense and civil rights legal work advocacy and public education. And their goal is to make sure that no one is locked up, shamed, or denied their constitutional or human rights because they have the capacity for pregnancy, are pregnant, or because of any outcome of pregnancy. And that includes abortion, miscarriage, stillbirth, and of course, birth. And so my question to you first is, I came to this episode from one of their staff members presenting at a advocacy meeting in New York that I was present at. I had been following these stories on my own, of course, through, as you see from the social media posts um, from the podcast. But what was interesting to me was that in that advocacy space, a lot of the people there who were women were surprised and they were unaware of these stories. And especially the stories where outcomes of birth were being criminalized. And so I'm wondering, was it surprising to you to hear these stories? That was the first thing I was going to mention. I was surprised by most, if not all of these stories. I appreciated how you cited all of them in your notes. And, and so so this is, this is so I could learn a little bit more about them. And the statistics that you mentioned too, even those were surprising. So yeah, this is not something that people typically think of, right? One of the most surprising things in this episode was the statistic that you mentioned that one in four women may experience sort of abortion throughout their 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 lifespan even women who have children already may 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 do this so this is something that's very prominent in in people's everyday life and for it to be criminalized is something that would be very hurtful to to society in general i have a friend who is very pro life and um you mean anti choice yeah, that's exactly how I, how I frame it. I always say, "Oh, you mean anti-choice, right?" No, so uh, so yeah, that, but you know, typically they use they use the other term. So right? we, we also say that word in quotes. Right, right, um, right, because you're not you, you, whose life are you are you protecting, right? And that's that that's what we should be looking at. And in society, uh, like one of the things that we mentioned before with Freakonomics about how it affects society in general, right? Um, but one of the things that was I discussed with her was how it was important for us to support uh, the woman's right to choose because even if you don't believe in it yourself, it's something that is so out there that we should, um, that, that for the greater good, it should be supported. Like we mentioned with the last episode and this episode, we should take a look at the mother and 
try to protect her. So this is the concept of reproductive justice, basically. Right. Bodily integrity, that a mother's life is not as valued as the baby's life, and it does, it's not given equal weight. Right. Especially in the last episode with Maggie and Bethany, where they talked about the fourth trimester and how once a baby is born, all of the care is on the baby and not on the mother and making sure that she's healthy and doing okay so that she can actually be the caretaker for the baby. Absolutely. The other thing that was discussed in this episode that goes along with that is what was considered to be normal behavior that is expected from the mother, right? That the mother is expected to, for example, some of the stories that were mentioned where the mother falls down the stairs and then she was um, accused of neglect and and, and, pers- and um, accused of that. And prosecuted, and prosecuted for, for it. it. Yes, that's what I was looking for. Or that she got into a fight and she was and she was hurt and therefore uh, supposedly endangering the, the the life of the of the fetus. Which again, it's the, it is a fetus. But it's difficult to argue with someone that believes that the fetus. I mean, there's two ways of thinking about it. Certain people say, well, the baby is not a baby. If it's a fetus, it, it doesn't have its own personhood. So. It's difficult to argue that, like, if they come with the premise uh, that that they they are a child, that they're a human being, it's really hard to to, to well, argue. Well, but even if you were to say that they're equal humans, you're still um, subordinating the life of the mother to the baby, exactly. and and the example that we gave, and and clearly you're doing so, you know, by punishing the mother, right? So the the or the pregnant person, because. With Marche Jones, the example you gave where she was in a fight and then she was arrested for getting in a fight while she was pregnant because she, quote unquote, started the fight or shouldn't have put herself in the situation where she was in, engaged in a, you know argument that led to phys- physical altercation. That seems to me like it's a huge violation of just, you know, our right to to be, you know, to ha- exercise free speech. And why is it that any harm to the baby is greater than her right to free speech? I mean, I'm not saying that there's, we should have a, a formula for that, but it's it just seems like an arbitrary way to try to criminalize, you know, her behavior and reinforce that her body does not belong to her, that it belongs to the state. Right. Uh, and so anyway, getting back to what you were saying, the example that Luc- uh, Indra and I talked about, I was sharing with Indra how the analogy of someone with, you know, everybody has two kidneys. And if you have a healthy kidney and you know that someone out there, you know, needs a kidney transplant, the state doesn't have the right to force your kidney to be extracted from your body right. to be inserted into the person who needs the kidney, right. right? So with the kidney transplant person, in this case, being the quote-unquote baby, and then you being the pregnant person or mom, right. right? Like, why is it that the state, we would think that that's a complete violation of your bodily integrity. Nobody has a right to insert you know, themselves into your body to extract something. And yet you as a pregnant person, the state has all these kinds of rules to control your body, to decide what to do with it, to override your decision about your birthing plan, for example. Right. So primarily we should be focusing on taking care of the the pregnant person. I agree. But like you said, it comes to that, the way that society 
has this narrative that, that that's that's built around you mentioned also in this episode how uh people feel like they have the right to touch a pregnant woman's belly just kind of like the same thing that i've seen myself where a white person feels like they have the right to touch a black person's hair that's something that i actually witnessed and i was i was appalled by seeing it the person that was that that was uh her hair was being touched was appalled that it was happening but the person who was doing it was completely oblivious to this. So was this a situation professionally? Yes, it and, was. Uh, and was the person who was touching the hair, who was the white person, was that a person of uh, higher status than the other person? Yes, yes, she was. It, it, that's, that's exactly what happened. It was a, a coworker of mine, and she just felt like, that was that was okay for her to do. Yes, she ha- she was a person of, of a, a higher position, but a different department. But yes, she was the director of some something. And when you witnessed that, what was everybody's response? Was it the person who had her hair touched? Did she say, "Excuse me"? Did she try to stop it from happening? Did she make a joke about it? I, I think at the moment, um, she said she was shocked, right? Because we had a discussion afterward. She said she was shocked. Now, I, I'm not saying that because she's in a, a position of higher power that maybe she, she felt intimidated by, by her or not. Um, I, 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 I can't really say that. But at the moment, she didn't say anything, and she was shocked, and she didn't bring it up to her afterward. It was just something that we discussed afterward and we kind of questioned some of her other behaviors that she's done in the past and we thought hey you know maybe that's a little bit racist or or or, or, or the other things that she mentioned but but look beyond that it's, it's to answer your question it wasn't something that was discussed to the person maybe the person maybe it would have been beneficial in order for the person to realize what she did wrong so i think a great book for you to suggest that person read is So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijeoma Oluo. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. It's a book that I think is really good for the lay person, kind of like white fragility. You know, it's meant for white people. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to, uh, it's written by a white person for white people to understand um, what is white fragility? And, and similarly, so you want to talk about race, talks about racism, but each chapter is distinct in itself. And it talks, it brings up issues that show up in the popular media. So what if I talk about race wrong? Or why am I being told to check my privilege? And what is intersectionality? And they also have police brutality and the school to prison pipeline and affirmative action. And why is it not okay for a non-black person to use the n-word one chapter though is why can't i touch your hair wow. yes that's specific and so they talk about so just to give you the full preview there's also a chapter on what is cultural appropriation what are microaggressions why are our students so angry what is the model minority with uh sorry what is the model minority myth and what if I hate Al Sharpton? So those are some of the chapters that they discuss, each one being very accessible to all people. And so if you're a person of color, it also helps you have that conversation with someone who's not a person of color. That, 
that sounds like a fascinating book. I, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to her about that. That's something that, I mean, it's someone that I interact with usually on a weekly basis. So that, that, that's helpful information for. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's a, in a work situation, obviously it's a little bit tricky because I'm not sure if that person was your superior or your peer. And, you know, you're also trying to uh, model a respectful work environment. And you're also trying to model how to get that young woman to advocate for herself, I'm sure. Um, so, and, and teaching about what a hostile work environment might look like. And, and so that, I would say, would be what I would call a microaggression. But, um, you know, those things are hard for people to recognize when they engage in those behaviors. Right, because the way they grew up may not necessarily have them um, exposed to this kind of thing, or no one is, has actually told them. So it, it, it's difficult. I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily say that she had malicious intent when she was doing it, but a lot of people may feel that they're attacked. They might feel offended if you say, hey, listen, you did something that was offensive. And despite the fact that she may not necessarily have perceived it as something uh, intentionally offensive, it's kind of like, um, let's say you're at a meal and you're chewing with your, I mean, not the same thing, but uh, <laughs> analogous, I would say, uh, if chewing with your mouth open, if that's something you didn't notice that, or it was something that you felt you didn't necessarily notice that was offensive. And then somebody were to tell you, you may correct that action. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a difficult path to navigate. Um, but I think, you know, I think it's a good next step for you to read that chapter and certainly, of course, read the book and, and see maybe there's a way for you to integrate that into the curricula and workshops that you currently have with students, most of whom I understand are people of color, so that they have the tools and the vocabulary to have these conversations in a civilized way, in a respectful way, without, without the emotion. Right, because that, I feel like the more informed you are, the better it would be for um, them to talk about it. It's just, yeah, exactly. Because a lot of times you may not have the words or the knowledge to articulate how you're feeling. So maybe the, the young woman who, um, whose hair was being touched, uh, maybe that's another factor in, in why they did not say something when it happened. What, what about the, um, you, you mentioned um, C-sections before with your sister and the previous episode that we were discussing. Were you surprised to hear about the Renat Dre case, this woman from Staten Island Hospital who was forced to have a C-section against her will? She wanted to have a natural birth after two C-sections. Uh, and Dr. Apparently said it was fine until it wasn't fine. Right. And so they overrode what her wishes were. And then her bladder was, uh, I believe, uh, damaged during that, uh, during that surgery. So, so afterwards she went and sued. And so it was surprising to find out that one of the things that were used to justify the doctor's actions is the protection of the fetus, that they, they had to make sure that the fetus was okay and that's that that justified um, overriding the health and the wishes of the mother. Yeah, I think that a lot of what makes all of these laws possible in being used against women 
is the fact that we don't have the Equal Rights Amendment. And so the fetus is getting personhood in so many states in the South. And if they have the same status as a woman, but women as a category are not protected, you and I went to see Equal Means Equal, the documentary, and we know that the sex um, is a status, is a class that doesn't have the same weight as race and other categories. It doesn't have strict scrutiny applied to it right under the law. And so that's something that I think is going to be an impediment for us to be able to basically battle against all of these very draconian policies and the ways in which existing law and policies are being used against women until we can get the Equal Rights Amendment passed. Right. That would take, um, I hope, a, a lot of um, support and um, for people in general to be educated about uh, about this so they can so they can make an informed decision when voting. Well, I don't know if you remember in the film, Equal Means Equal, there was a prosecutor, I believe, in Los Angeles County, a woman, a white woman, who thought that women had equal rights until the filmmaker said, did you know that women don't have equal rights in this country? And she was surprised. Yeah, it's, it, it, again, the average person, I, I, since you seem to be a person that is very well educated, um, it, it, it can be shocking to find people that don't know a lot of the things that you may find obvious. So it, it, it's something that, it, it also surprises me, like, like, like I mentioned earlier, that the, the, the whole Joker thing, I thought, you know, that was pretty obvious and that was pretty, to me, something that I wouldn't, I wouldn't subscribe to, that idea that you, you should be blaming the mother for supposedly neglecting a child from an abuser. But a lot of people, that even that I know, that I thought would know something like this, were, were, were not aware of that. So it, it just takes a lot of education. Did you, do you feel like a year ago, prior to this podcast's launch and your involvement in it, that you would have had a different take if you saw the movie a year ago? Would you have looked at the mother and said she should be blamed for being a victim of domestic violence and exposing her, the Joker to that? I, 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 since, since my education in... Um... In this topic and feminism in general is something that came slowly and through uh, a lot of exposure. It's something that um, I can't really pinpoint if it was a year ago or before that. I'm not sure, but I can definitely tell you that uh, before I met you, I was a completely different person. <laughs> uh, so whether it was 10 years ago, five years ago, or a year ago, I can't tell you, but I, I definitely would say that I can attribute it to the education and, and my exposure to all of this. So is there anything about that's not specific to who you are that you think is ubiquitous in all human beings that we can tap into to get them to be more interested and open to learning about these issues that might, you know, emotionally scare them or make them feel insecure? Insecure about? Threatened, right? Like men being threatened by feminism because they think it's about man-hating. Right. Right. Are you saying what could change that? What is it that... Is there anything that we can tap into, like a tactic or a... It's very difficult, I would say, because there's so many factors that are involved in how a person thinks and how a person makes decisions. So from where you're born to the language that you speak, to the culture that you 
you grew up in, the religion. There's just so many factors. And I think when we tackle all these factors at the same time, it's, it, or different people attack, tackle different factors, you can, you can hopefully get the knowledge out there. And, and, and um, look, there's a lot of beliefs that the majority of people believe already. For example, like a lot of the progressive movement that's happening right now in the United States, there are a lot of people that do agree with it. And it's the media, which is one of the things that we, we talked about earlier, that builds this narrative that doesn't necessarily show that, that kind of says things like, oh, uh, that's socialism, and so that's not going to work, and they're just trying to take your money, and, and like they, they just build this narrative. But people do have these beliefs. So it's really hard to measure if what we're doing is necessarily effective because a lot of the, things, a lot of the way we get information is from the media ourselves. So a lot of people have uh, biases that kind of filter what it is that they, they, they say. One of the things that also we mentioned earlier was journalism and how journalists have this, have this responsibility to report things accurately and how for even journalists, it's very difficult for them to do research. Because one of the things, uh, I, I believe it was Maggie that said, and correct me if I'm wrong, but she said that if a person is going to look into the history of, of something that deals with... That was the example of Dr. Martin Cooney, who was involved in, I believe, designing the first incubator for preemies. And it was Bethany who said that when journalists do research, they look on the internet and they find Dr. Martin Cooney. But the problem is that the articles that are on the internet are inaccurate. Right. So it's something that can be a problem even for journalists, right? Um, even though some of them are informed and they may have some medical training, it's, it's not something that's easy. For example, I was also thinking of, let, let's say you're talking about race and intelligence, and you find something, although if you were to look up, for example, the bell curve on the internet right now, you would find how it has been discredited. But if somebody who didn't know about this back in the day before it was discredited, wanted to find a, a link between intelligence and race, and they would use something like the bell curve in order to justify that somehow black people are less intelligent than white people, it would be something that is available. It is information, uh, despite it being false and, and being debunked. Um, now, in the past, they may not necessarily have, have had the resources to do that. So it's, it's something that journalists have to be very careful of. And uh, also as a reader, as a, a consumer of media, we should be critical on what the narrative is when we're reading articles and, and where, when information is, is uh, being disseminated to us. Yeah, that's true. What about the next episode, episode 69, the survivor stories with Jessica Ingalls? So she is an example of someone who's, she has her own YouTube channel and um, she's been very active. She was just recently on the news in California being interviewed about her case where she is an example of one of many protective moms who is a victim of domestic violence and whose court officials have not followed procedure and enforced the law. And then there's, you know, all these people who are basically, because of cronyism, participating in that. And she lost custody of her daughter to her abuser. And this is part of the systemic issue of how 
mothers, protective mothers who make claims of abuse or child abuse or child sexual abuse are disbelieved and retaliated against by the courts um, with custody being placed of the child with the abuser. And that was discussed in episode nine, but we shared an updated final publication of Joan Meyer's article with my interview with Jessica. Mm -hmm. It's scary to think that a person, a normal person like him, who has these connections with the police and was able to um, have them cooperate and corroborate some of his some of his claims, and he was able to get away with so much so much abuse. It, it's scary to think that people with even more power and more connections, and to see what it is that they can get away with, right? It, it's awful how the system the system protects themselves, they, whether it be police officers or politicians, and the level of um, the injustice that can occur because of it. Well, I like to use the example, you know, as, as we've shared in the podcast before, this podcast uses gender as a lens to explore power, privilege, and oppression. And the goal is really to understand and expose abuse and abuse of power in whatever way it's manifested, wherever it's manifested, wherever it shows up. So if it shows up in politics or in your workplace or in your home, those tactics are usually the same. And so similarly with Jessica and her, you know, cadre of her abusers, court uh, um, professionals, as well as his family members, it's very similar to what's happening in our politics right now in the administration where you have people who are attorneys who have, in theory, passed the bar and have committed to ethical guidelines of how to behave, who are lying and covering up and not exercising their duty to, for example, the attorney general to uphold justice for the country, uh, instead being sort of a paid lackey for one person. Right. And I believe some of their defenses basically boils down to, well, just because it's not ethical doesn't mean it's not illegal. So that means that our legal system isn't broad enough to include all of the unethical behaviors. And should we or should we not actually have a system where we're punishing people for engaging in behaviors that are unethical to disincentivize them? And I mean, and also, I I don't, and maybe there's so much that I don't know about this, but there's a lot of things that are clear, or some people would agree that they are clear violations of the law, but they aren't enforced. Like, what some of the things that blow my, one of the things that really just shocks me is, is how can the president be above the law, right? And it's, it's, uh, we would think that everybody un- is under the same laws, but for for one person not to necessarily be uh, be like you can't look at their taxes because a president can't be indicted of of, of uh, on a crime. I believe that's that's while they're in office. While they're in office, so that's that that's something that I I I, I just don't understand. Well, I think also you know the law is only as effective as as it can be enforced, right? And if and it happens all the time in my case as well my case is very similar to Jessica's almost the same fact patterns um same cronyism there's an attorney who's acts like Rudy Giuliani you know and then the 
the William Barr character as the attorney for the child, and each of them are acting not ethically either. And what do you do if people are don't follow the law? You could only then go through the legal system to get them to enforce the law. And then the le- the people who are the interpreters of the law, the judges, mm-hmm. they actually have to take the time to read documents carefully, to listen carefully, to check for understanding. And if they're hearing something and misinterpreting it, I've always I've said many things where it's been misinterpreted and and misinterpreted inaccurately to my detriment. Mm-hmm. Um, then you know they're not enforcing the law either in that way. And so it really takes a lot of self-awareness and active self-engagement and reflection to check your biases. Right. To check if your process itself is fair and um, not just your conclusions, but the thought processes that you're going through. In order to get to those conclusions. Right. Um, I mean, Jessica mentioned how different parts of uh, different things that she, she, when she was addressing her case, that some judges would say, yes, this is something that the judge is doing that's illegal and, or, or that, that uh, the abuser did that was illegal and you deserve protection. But then there were other parts of the system that overrode that, which allowed the kidnapping of her son or her daughter, daughter, sorry. Well, she wasn't effectively quote unquote kidnapped. It was actually endorsed. I mean, it's Right. De facto, but she it was endorsed by all of these illegal procedures where he was able to, you know, get the court to um, in California to take jurisdiction and um, re- redirect her mail, which my abuser did with me as well, you know, so that she didn't get served. And then by not appearing at a court hearing, she, the decision went automatically to the father. Right, because... And so then he was able to be granted. Right, which is something that has happened to you as well. And what's worse is also the uh, connections that the abuser has. Um, I wouldn't say that's worse, but I would say what helps the abuser is the connections and the, the people that he also convinces to hear his side of the story without context. They work for him. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of an example is, you know, my my child's attorney never met with me, has never talked to me. Lots of things have happened in our case and he doesn't feel like it's his responsibility despite guidelines for attorneys representing children to investigate domestic violence, to talk to experts, to um to engage in a fair process where fact-finding is, fact-finding informs the conclusion. Right. Which is something that you do a lot in your podcast. You know, one of the major things that you do is research and you talk to experts. You talk to people who are experts in the field that you may not necessarily be an expert at you, you, you talk to them, you, you cite everything that you talk about, and you provide information above and beyond. So that, 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 that's something that I, that I do appreciate about your podcast. And um, I hope others do the same. 
Wow. Well, thank you. I mean, I I appreciate that, especially since after the Jessica Ingalls episode aired. I mean, I actually, you know, I try to every week post promotions for each of my episodes. And honestly, I had been late with 67 and 68 in giving them each the fair time because I had been working on my own court case. Uh, And so with the Jessica episode, I actually didn't do any promotions at all. And yet within a day, her abuser's sister, aunt, and girlfriend reached out to me online and social media and started attacking the episode content, as well as trying to post bad reviews of my podcast. I don't know that they've actually heard any of the other episodes and and using my one episode, which they probably didn't hear as well, to make, a, um, you know, draw conclusions and to attack, I think is very indicative of what abusers do, which is why I did a follow-up episode 70 um, to share how that played out. But it was very, I mean, it was disappointing, but it wasn't surprising that it happened. Right. I mean, it's, and and if you read the criticisms, you, you, you can understand maybe that they didn't listen to the episodes, that they, um, that they have this uh, good people on both sides kind of narrative. We're like, well, you have to also worry about the, the, the men who are abused by women, which is, is one of those false equivalence things that people are, if they were to listen to the episodes, they would understand. They would understand and be able to, uh, we wouldn't say that in the, in the first place. But again, it, it, it's, it's something that they, it's something that starts from the abuser and essentially is where we we should be um looking at well what what were your thoughts about um the episode's um reaction i mean it, it was well informed uh and and it was um i i did appreciate it and it kind of shed light into um the inner workings of of how how you present your information um so i i hope that people will uh continue listening and read uh, and and do their research in order to uh, have a frame of 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 how they think about um, the topics that we speak about in the podcast. So um, I appreciated it. Okay. So any any other um, thoughts about how we should? Any other thoughts about survivor stories going forward? Because this is the first time that any survivor's abuser uh, or his posse, so to speak, uh, came out to do a direct attack. And, you know, it's surprising in a way also because so many of the survivors that I've interviewed, they've, for example, Rosara Torres Thomas, um, she, she wrote a book about her abuse and her abuser was a cop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she named him and named all the people you know, that were involved. And I, I don't know, maybe that's so public that if anything happened to her, you know, it would be taken more seriously. And so people were un, unwilling to come out and, and debate it. You know, the fact that her episode aired and she wrote the book and she's always out in social media talking about it. I don't know why. Um, maybe that's also something that happened longer ago because she's separated you know, from that in time and distance, whereas Jessica's still actively engaged, yeah, in her case. 
Right. That could be another factor to it. I, I feel we have to continue educating people because it's just the minority, the few people that um, were motivated probably by the abuser in order for 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 them to to actively attack you online right and and attack the podcast it's it, it, it we should continue to make sure we're serving the, the the people that is helping out there so so like you're you're giving a voice to the people who don't have the voice to to speak for themselves you know so um despite the people who are trying to prevent you from letting that happen um it's something that you should continue we shouldn't we shouldn't give too much focus on something that whose goal is to give them. We shouldn't give voice to those that are going against the people who deserve to be listened to. So do you feel like there's any kind of journalism, journalistic ethic that we should be abiding by where each side gets to have a say, like, should I be reaching out to the abuser and asking for his side of the story? Because subsequent to this, her episode being aired, Jessica went online and then put out on social media copies of the documents to prove, you know, all of the things that they were saying were untrue. I think debating, there's, there's just certain formats, form, places where you should be debating. If there's something that they, there's like, hey, you know what, I disagree. There, there are people online that do this, right? Like, for example, if it, coming into politics specifically, right? There are people online that, that do, do this on both Twitch and YouTube to discuss both sides and, and have that discussion, right? And so there are di- specific places where you do that. You are informing. You're not in a, in a space where you're debating. You're just specifically giving voice to the people who, who, who are abused. And you're, you're, you're informing the public on all of these topics. So I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't say that that would be, that's my opinion. I wouldn't say that that's, that I'm, I'm not of the opinion that we should be giving voice uh, again, it's not equal also, right? It's a, vo- a voice of an abuser as opposed to the voice of a victim. So, well, would, so you're saying because it's not, I'm not, a, this is not a court of law, there's not that requirement to give equal voice. And because these documents have, that I reviewed prior to our interview, these documents confirm that he is an abuser, that I don't need to give him that space to defend himself. You, I mean, you're attacking facts, right? So why, why would that even be a thing? It's kind of like saying, hey, the sky is blue. And another person saying, well, you know what? I think it's red. The, the sky is definitely red. Why would you argue with that? It's not, it's not something that you should be doing. And again, if somebody wants to do that, you can do that in another place like online something or the person could if they're not clear on something that you said maybe we should encourage them to reach out to you privately and i'm sure that you're open to uh talking to them privately okay well that's very helpful advice and let's try to keep giving voice to survivors absolutely i'm I'm on board with that thank you michael thank you so much terry thanks for listening to this episode of engendered the show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. 
I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. 